So in today's world, the Norse mythology is not uncommon. You've probably seen Thor in a movie in the last 10 years. And Loki has become sort of a anti-hero that everyone loves. And of course, the Viking series. In the Viking series, yeah. Now, the Vikings had a story about a time that they called Ragnarok. And they knew in their, in their world that was an event that was yet to happen, but would happen eventually. And even the gods themselves knew it was going to happen and couldn't do anything about it. And Ragnarok to them, well, you would call that Judgment Day. That was the end of the world as we knew it. And it kind of feels appropriate to talk about Ragnarok at this point in time. And it is not the feel-good, funny movie featuring the Hulk. This is, this is the end of the world. End of days. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten, and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. So, Eric, when I was when I proposed the idea of Norse mythology, I know I just sort of said Norse mythology, and we were going to go there. And then the more I read, the more I felt we needed to talk about Ragnarok specifically, the Ragnarok prophecy. I don't want to be dark, but I do want to be for real for a moment. And this isn't meant to be political or whatever. It may come across that way. But frankly, even in the Christian faith, you talk about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, mm-hmm. war, famine, pestilence, and death. And it is hard to watch the news or read news or, or anything else and say that we're not too far away. Yeah. You know, we have war. We're constantly engaged in war, whether that war be, you know, the war on drugs or the war on terror or, you know, what happens in the U- what's happening in the Ukraine. As humans, we seem obsessed to destroy ourselves and our environment. Uh, pestilence. Dear Lord, I don't think I need to, to dwell too much on that with what's happened in the last couple of years. Uh, now this whole monkeypox thing that's, you know, we, we're always coming up with new diseases. I, I, I just had a conversation with someone just the other day in the medical professional field and um, talking about how AIDS is on the rise again. You know, I haven't heard about that yeah. since the mid-80s. So you've got war. You've got pest, uh, pestilence or plague, famine. I mean, let's face it. You have people starving daily, children who don't have enough to eat, people in America that's supposed to be the most plentiful nation on the planet who don't, you know, can't afford to eat. Homeless on the rise everywhere, especially in the United States. I saw an article just the other day that said there was only 10 weeks worth of wheat in the world's wheat supply because of the war in Ukraine and, and all that. So you're talking about humanitarian crisis. And then, of course, death. Again, I don't want this to be political. I don't want you to take this one way or the other. And, and let me preface this by saying I, I am, I'm a gun owner, so I'm definitely not condemning. Likewise. But every stinking day, you, you turn on the news, or for me, I, I, you know, social media, whatever, and every day there's some kind of shooting where somebody's been killed, and innocent people. Just stupidity. You know, a guy specifically targeting black people. A, a guy shooting up a school in Texas, Uvalde, and and in the oh man, I, I could talk for, on that that shooting in Texas where the police were absolutely useless, 
And, you know, there were common citizens, people like you and me, who were willing to put themselves at risk more than those police to go save those kids. You know, it's sad. Every day people are being shot and killed. Death is just rampant in, in one form or another. There's so many things in this world that could kill you without, like, having to be worried when you go to the movie theater that some nut job's going to walk in with a gun. Try to lighten the moment a little bit here. You know, we've often joked on the podcast that Australia, where everything wants to try to kill you, well, America is not too far behind that. And, and I say America, but, I mean, really across the world. And, and, and yeah, you know, I, I hate to bring the podcast down. I know we try to be lighthearted and tell stories that are, you know, at the very least fun and interesting. And, and occasionally we get a good laugh from some dumb thing that we say. <laughs> but, you know, you, you get these fatalistic, just so negative, like, I know there's a lot of, of a lot of Christian-based religions that say we are at the end of days. And I'm going to tell you, doing a little research on Ragnarok, trust me, it ain't just the Christian faith that say that we're at the end of days. When I start to get into Ragnarok and the story of how Ragnarok begins, I think you'll see some pretty frightening parallels between where we're at now and what the Vikings said was the end of the world. And these guys... You know, you go way back to Viking lore, the first people to come to North America and things like that the was Leif Erikson. And you talk, these guys were, were reaving and pillaging and, and honestly had, you know, they they depict them as being these horrible, horrible, barbaric conquerors. They really had a fairly civilized culture. They and believed in regular society bathing. And, and, yeah. You know, they had, you know, they did makeup and face paint and they did their hair. They had, you know, villages and all that, but they had this religious structure that by modern standards was, you know, it was pagan gods. Pagan. Mm-hmm. So, but Eric, if you're going to talk about the end, you got to talk about the beginning a little bit. How do we get there? Got to have the start to have the finish. So, I know I'm going to talk a lot. I really got into the the Ragnarok thing, and you can help fill in some details as we go. I know you and I are probably both familiar with Norse mythology, being D&D players, of course, that's I think those kind of things go hand in hand. We're going to we're going to clarify some things. We're going to talk about some of the gods and whatnot. Uh, and I think we'll fill in some details as we go. So I'm going to start just at the start of time for Norse mythology. When only the world tree Yggdrasil in the misty void of Gnungagap existed. And uh, yeah, we'll probably mess some names up. <laughs> you but, can guarantee you know, it. There was There was a time when there was nothing, which most religions start that way. Mm-hmm. There was a time before anything exists. Now, Yggdrasil and Gigungagap were bordered on one side by the fires of Muspelheim and on the other by the ice of Niflheim. Now, in time, the fires of Muspelheim would melt the ices of Niflheim and in the process reveal the giant Ymir and the cow Audhumla. So, yeah. The giant cow. Giant cows. Mm-hmm. Now, Audhumla would lick at the ice of Niflheim and eventually uncover the god Buri. Buri's son Bor mated with the giantess Bestla, and this resulted in the birth of the gods Odin, Vili, and V. Now, Ymir began the race of Jotun. I think modern times we just assume that all Jotun were giants, but they weren't. But some were. And, and some of the Jotun would become giants. Jotun was sort of a catch-all for some of these, these, what you would call dark races of the time. Now, eventually, Odin, Vili, and V would kill Ymir and most of his offspring. And then after that, they created the Nine Realms. So some of these you've heard, especially if you're familiar with you know, Thor and the Thor movies and that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the nine realms of creation were as follows. You have Asgard, home of the Aesir, and it was that was where the most of the, the you know, Viking gods live, the Asgardians. And it was joined to Midgard by the Bifrost Bridge. And you had Alfheim, which was home of the elves. 
Hell, H-E-L, which was home of those who died of illness or old age, that was considered an unworthy death. Now, I mean, we, we can talk about Vikings. Either go to yeah. the Valhalla or you, you either, hell. you know, you die in battle and come back on your shield, kind of. You went to Valhalla if you died in battle. You went to, to hell if you died unworthy. You have Jotunheim, home of the giants and frost giants. Uh, you have Midgard, which was home of humans between Asgard and Jotunheim, and that's the world we inhabit. Mm-hmm. Earth is is Midgard. Uh, you had Muspelheim, which was home of the fire giants and their ruler Surtur. Uh, Nidavellir, which was home to the dwarves beneath the earth, which you know in the Marvel movies was a you know an asteroid or whatever that with a dying star. And uh, I thought this was interesting as I as I dove in did a little bit of research. I thought. I knew more about Viking lore and legend yeah, and than I learned what that I too. really did. Well, and that's why I ended up focusing just on Ragnarok. You could, We could do episode after episode. I did not realize elves and dwarves were really a part of it until it started coming out in some of the, the Marvel cinematic universe yep. and that kind of stuff. Well, the last two of the nine realms, Niflheim, home of ice, snow, and mist near to Muspelheim. And then you had Vanaheim, which was home to the Vanir, which was sort of... You had the Aesir and the Vanir were two types of gods that existed. Uh, And then, of course, there were other parts of the mythology. You had Valhalla, like you said, which was where noble warriors went when they died, people who had died worthy deaths uh, and things like that. Now, to touch on some of the important gods of Norse mythology, because these names will come up as we talk about Ragnarok, you, of course, start with Odin. I've I've got some info on Odin. Uh, Well, he's the supreme deity and the greatest among the gods. Mm Mm-hmm. The all-father of Asgard, uh, the one-eyed old man that has wisdom to see all. You know, he possesses great wisdom and a fierce temper to match. He rides an eight-legged steed horse named Slegnir. He has been kept alive in literature and cinema, probably best known, at least recently, portrayed by Anthony Hopkins in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But, of course, it goes on and on with other media, such as video games, even in Final Fantasy. Or possibly you might have picked up on the uh, one-eyed Odin in the popular TV series American Gods kind of recently. Which brings me to kind of a perplexing, less-known fact. How exactly did Odin lose his eye? Now, in the TV series American Gods, it depicts the Allfather as having different colored eyes, uh, but not per se blind. Still, we are left to wonder, was he born blind with only one eye? Did he lose it in a bet? Maybe during battle? So, of course, in the show American Gods, um, and and this is an aside, this is just me, I hate to derail, he's portrayed by the actor Ian McShane, which if you've seen Deadwood, he played Al Swearingen. Uh, he's popped up in a couple other movies. He was in Game of Thrones. Fantastic actor. I love that guy. Anything he's in, I could watch him. He's you know, a good I, actor. I know, you, good actor. I know the phrase, you know, I could watch this guy read the phone book, and it would be fascinating. <laughs> he's a great actor. But, but the book American Gods, fantastic book that it's based off of, and and they really portray the the different old gods in very fascinating ways, and yeah, uh, the American Gods is definitely a good uh, piece of pop culture to get into, whether it's the TV show or the book or whatever. Good representation, but still, we're left to wonder: Was he born blind with only one eye? Did he lose it in a bed? Perhaps lost it in battle? Actually, none of those. Odin was always seeking more wisdom and knowledge. It literally plagued him, and he was obsessed with it. In Old Norse mythology, recently revealed in a video game platform, God of War, Kratos speaks with a slain giant's head by the name of Mimir. 
It is with this mention in the slain of what some call the giant race, the one known as Mimir's head was collected and preserved by none other than Odin himself. He magically kept the head and therefore knowledge the great Mimir possessed alive where he could learn from it. At one point during Odin's study in the allure for gaining more wisdom, Mimir tells Odin he could self-sacrifice one of his eyes and be able to drink of what is now known as the Well of Urd. Depending upon your source... The well of Urd, belonging to Mimir or guarded by Mimir, could have been a singular location or some even say several locations stating where it was hidden. Now, probably most commonly accepted is the well of Urd is beneath the mighty tree of Yggdrasil that Bill had touched upon, such as mentioned in another video game, Assassin's Creed. But Odin, the Allfather, drank the purest, assuming the head, which some called the Well of Mimir of the Skies, which would kind of make sense since Odin is assumed to be in the heavens, if you will, of Asgard. Regardless, Odin eagerly plucks out one of his own eyeballs and tosses it into the well. Now, Mimir, being of his word, uses a drinking horn, and he himself reaches down and retrieves Odin some good old eyeball water to drink (laughs) from this well. And he allows him to drink, bestowing upon him even more wisdom and understanding of the entire cosmos. Now, you might say, well, what did he learn? Obviously, we're not 100% clear, but we feel confident in stating the following from several scholars. One of the things he learned was Ragnarok. He learned of Ragnarok. Odin was cursed with the knowledge of knowing that Ragnarok was going to happen, and there was nothing that any of the gods could do to stop it. But he also had the knowledge that Ragnarok didn't necessarily represent the end. So we'll, and I'll talk about that as we talk so about So it's kind of a plague to have that knowledge and uh, know it, that you really can't change a lot of yeah, it. Essentially, it's knowing you're going to die and knowing there's nothing you can do about it. Wow. Several scholars state that one of the things, uh, a lot of wisdom is truly derived from loss. Now, whether it's a body part, Odin's eye in this instance, or perhaps the loss of a friend or a loved one. Once we go through that, we do emerge with a new insight and a wisdom. Number two, no sacrifice is too large for gaining knowledge of the cosmos. You know, how dare we consider any of ourselves so mighty, even that the god Odin, uh, to not be able to sacrifice for the greater good. Number three, by sacrificing an eye, there is a familiarity there of the third eye of Hinduism. One most people do not possess or they choose not to open or look into. By looking at things differently, a.k.a. through this third eye, we often see things directly in front of us that most often we just overlook or take for granted. Kind of goes back to that old song, you you don't know what you got until it's gone kind of philosophy. Fourthly, Odin himself chose to sacrifice something that he felt was quite small in the realm of things. One of two eyes. It did not make him go totally blind. He still had the other eye. So by giving something small in reflection, he represents something that could be gained at a much larger scale. And then to Bill's point, the knowledge of Ragnarok. So you talked about his quest for knowledge. He was always on an unending quest for knowledge, always in pursuit of that knowledge. And with him, he would bring his two ravens, Hunan and Munin. Uh, he had two wolves. He wrote, you know, his, his, what was the eight-legged steed? Eight-legged steed, yes. Uh, and he, and the Valkyries, which. Another total aspect of everything. Marvel kind of got that one right, but the Valkyries were essentially these angelic warrior women that were seen, you know, they, they would guide the worthy to Valhalla. Almost Amazonian angel cross. Yeah. 
So as we continue through this list, as we lay the groundwork in our cast of characters for Ragnarok, you have Frigg, Odin's wife, considered a paragon of beauty amongst the gods. She was, of course, the mighty queen of Asgard to Odin's king uh, and was gifted with the power of divination. You know, again, as Marvel says in the movie, she was raised by witches mm-hmm. and, and she, she could define the future to some degree. You have Balder, son of Odin and Frigg. He was considered the epitome of radiance, beauty, kindness, and fairness. Sort of one of the great gods. Uh, they believed him to be immortal, um, but Norse gods typically weren't. Norse gods definitely could be killed under the right circumstances. And in his case, he was killed with a sprig of mistletoe. When that oh, trickster yes. god Loki gave it to um, the god Hod and told him, hey, throw this at Balder. It won't bother him at all. And of course... Not and I believe, any better. I believe Balder was blind as well. Yeah. So, he, I, I mean, this was. poor guy didn't even see it coming. You know, here's Loki's playing around. And then, obviously, speaking of Loki, Loki was a trickster god who could shapeshift and take on animalistic forms and, and came up with this scheme that caused the death of Balder. Uh, in Norse mythology, he is not the anti-hero that he has become, portrayed by, you know, Tom Hiddleston, who, you know. Does a great job of No it. judgment. The guy is strikingly handsome and is incredibly charming in that role. The real Loki, or... The, the Loki of myth was not that guy. No, not at all. He was just I mean, he was a bastard. <laughs> Evil, sinister dude. Uh, now, you talk about Loki. Let's go ahead and jump over to Thor, Odin's most widely known son. Protector in humanity and god of thunder. So they do have that right. Wielded the legendary hammer Mjolnir. That was his weapon of choice and called down the thunder and lightning. He was known for his bravery, his strength, his healing powers, strangely enough, which I didn't know, and his righteousness. So, again, one of the most noble of these gods. You have Freya, uh, one of the most sensual and passionate goddesses, and sister Freyr. Freyr, the god of fertility, one of the most respected gods, considered a symbol of prosperity and pleasant weather conditions. They they have some weird attachments here. (laughs) Uh, Heimdall, which, you know, you're, you're familiar with if you're familiar with the... You know, Marvel movies, but he was known as the shiniest of all gods due to him having the whitest skin, which I found was kind of weird. Shiniest. Especially when you consider in the movie he was portrayed by Idris Elba. Yeah. Yeah. Who's not white. Yep, not white. Uh, Now, he was a son of Odin who sat upon the Bifrost. He was essentially the guardian of the Bifrost Bridge. So if you were going to attack Asgard, he would know that. He would be prepared for that. He remained forever on alert. That was his, his job, was just guarding Asgard against attack. You have Hel or as we've modernized it to feminize it a little bit, Hela, goddess and ruler of the Norse underworld. I was say, that's an easy one to figure out. But she essentially presided over the unworthy dead. You have Vidar, another son of the supreme god, um, Odin, but this time with a giantess grid. Uh, his powers were matched only by Thor. So he was apparently a very powerful god himself. And then finally, Vale, a son of Odin who avenged Baldur's death when he killed Hod. You know, and again, Hod was the one who pierced Balder with mistletoe sprig after being tricked by Loki. And that's that's not all of the gods. Obviously, there were more gods well, than the these. That's the key players. These were sort of the most important key players. And this sort of touches on the names that are going to come up as we talk about Ragnarok. Again, I don't want to bring it down, but Ragnarok is very serious in, in Norse mythology. It was considered inevitable. You know, Odin knew it was happening and could do nothing about it. He was just waiting for it to happen. So... We've gone through the beginning. We've, we've talked about the nine realms, so you can kind of understand when we reference those. We talked about some of the important gods. but Now, before you get into Ragnarok, uh, I'd like to share a story on Loki. You know, uh, Loki's, again, 
besides maybe Thor and Odin is probably one of the, the better known. But as we talked about, uh, Loki in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is portrayed at times an anti-hero, at times a hero, I'll even say. Yeah. Um, but this will kind of give you an idea of the real Loki. Sif, the goddess and wife of Thor, was known to have the most beautiful long locks of flowing hair and this made her more beautiful above all others. Now, one evening, as Sif and Thor lay in bed, the god and trickster Loki entered their chamber and cut her hair, making her bald. Now, upon morning, Thor wakened to find this bald woman laying next to him, in which he rolled over and said, Witch, what are you doing here, and what have you done with my beautiful Sif? She looked into her husband's eyes, and Thor, of course, recognized her vaguely through those eyes as by removing this blonde hair, it had made the woman quite hideous and ugly. He screamed out, Loki! He automatically knew, of course, who did this, and stormed out to find the trickster, where he drug him up the steps and threw him into the bedchamber. It is said that Thor's words rang across the city of Asgard, and all knew of Thor's fury that we had talked about. Loki, fix this now, or I swear by Odin I will break every bone in your body, and it will bring me such happiness. Loki, even uh, himself understanding perhaps this trick might have went just a little bit overboard, knew Thor meant what he said, and so he swore he would fix it and return. Now Loki thought to himself as he left, how on world can I fix this? And then he remembered the land of the dwarves, which were in fact the greatest of all crafters. So he traveled there immediately to Fartalheim, the land of the dwarves. But he must come up with a way to get them to help him. After all, you know, Loki was known as a trickster and one not to be trusted. How or why would they help him now? So, yet again, the trickster concocted a scheme. He visited first the brothers, son of Elvi, great craftsman. Loki entered their chamber stating, uh, You have not heard the latest news. The gods have commissioned the dwarves to a competition of the greatest craftsmen. And the sons Brock and Itre, that you, the sons of Evolvi, do not stand a chance to compete against them. Now, the brothers of Volvi furiously stated, That is absurd. Those clumsy-handed dwarves do not stand a chance against our crafting skills. Now, Loki smiled, seeing his plan starting to fall together. Very well, then. Well, there are three requirements. You must construct three unique gifts worthy of the gods themselves. But one of them has to be long-flowing golden locks of hair that continually grow. Loki then made his departure from one dwarvish house to another, this time to the sons Brock and Itri. Loki once again entered and, and proposes the competition this time to the opposite dwarvish house. You won't believe this, but those sons of Evolvi, the great crafters, they've entered this contest of sorts for the gods, constructing three items worthy of the gods. But of course, they told me personally, you, Brock and Itri, don't stand a chance against them, so I doubt you'll even want to compete. Now, Brock and Itri speak up. Nonsense. It is already well known that we are the best craftsmen in all the land, and we would have nothing to gain, trickster. So what are you up to? Loki realizes he must make this competition happen, or Thor will surely kill him. So in a moment of despair, he states, Well, I, 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 doubt, that. I, I doubt that so much. I, I would vow my own head, the head of Loki, as a prize to you, if you can truly beat the brothers of Itri. So what do you say now, dwarves? Nabrak and Itri angrily speak up. 
We'll take that challenge, all right, and we will defeat the brothers of Ilvi once and for all. And in boot, we shall possess the head of you, Loki, god and trickster, for it is a worthy prize indeed. Loki then leaves the dwarves, almost quivering with fear. What had he done? It was well known that Brock and Eitri were greater crafters than that of the brothers Eitri. So he must use all of his cunning and wits to keep his head fixed in this messy ordeal with Thor and Sif to come out the victor. Now Loki returned to Asgard and informed that the greatest dwarvish families were competing for the title of Grand Crafter in creating gifts for several of the gods who would be attending as judges. He had selected Odin, of course, Thor, and Frey. Loki hid back in the shadows over the coming weeks, observing the two dwarvish household or families as they worked on their creations. Both were doing quite well, but as he feared, the brothers Brock and Itri, who he had promised his head to if they had won, had already created two magnificent creations, and they were working on a third, which was going to top the previous, a hammer fit for the gods. He listened closely to learn the forge making this magnificent hammer had to be controlled perfectly, not one degree below, not one degree higher, for the target temperature. In doing so, the, br- the brother Brock worked around the clock using hand-controlled bellows to fan the mighty forge, with his expertise and craftsmanship observing each and every bellow of air. Loki had to react quickly, so one night when Brock was all alone in the forge and his brother had retired, he transformed himself into a giant mosquito, and he stung Brock in the hand with painful agony. Yet Brock fought off the pain and continued to to work as the smith in the forge. Loki then attacked Brock again, growing slightly larger in size and this time painfully stinging him in the neck and throat. Brock swatted the giant mosquito but missed, now struggling with the itching and painful stings on both his hand and neck, which all started to swell. But Brock continued on with his endeavors to create the mighty hammer. Loki, in a last-ditch effort, buzzed around the smoke-filled room and attacked one last time. In this instance, stinging Brock directly in the eyes. Brock screamed out in pain, now swollen, almost a paralyzed hand and gasping for breath as his throat started to swell shut, and now pain coursing through his eyes, taking partially his sight. He stumbled and finally succumbed for just a moment enough that the temperature of the forge dropped by one degree. In doing so, the hammer's handle broke, and Loki smiled, feeling he had accomplished what he needed, and surely it would save his own head from becoming a trophy for the dwarves. Loki left to await the coming days for the revealing of the contest. In a grand hall fashion, the two parties of the dwarves entered to present the gods with their finest of work, and to learn once and for all who would be deemed the Grand Crafter. First, the sons of Evolvi presented their creations. The first item was beautiful, flowing long locks of hair for the wife of Thor, Seth. They seemed to be made of pure gold, and when Seth tried it on, she was once again radiant and more beautiful than ever. Thor was extremely pleased. Loki smiled as he felt some relief. Next, the brothers presented Odin himself with a mighty spear, a weapon that could pierce anything. A spear that had any oath taken from it was simply unbreakable. Frey was given a magical folding boat 
that could be folded up so many times it would neatly fit inside of a pocket, but once unfolded was once again a grand ship with great speed and accuracy. The brothers of Evolvi did not disappoint, and Loki was feeling pretty good about the way the game was falling in his favor. But then, the brothers Brock and Itri were up. They presented their own creations to the gods. Odin noticed Brock still had puffy eyes and swollen spots on his body, but allowed him to continue. Brock approached Odin and presented him with a golden magic bracelet in which every eight nights, eight more golden bracelets would fall like droplets and take shape. He stated this could serve as trinkets for decoration for Odin, for Odin or would continue to make him great wealth as the each was made of solid gold. Next, a living creature was presented to Frey, a golden boar with shiny metallic fur, which even in darkness would shine and drive away the dark. The grand steed would never tire, could fly, serving as a great mount, and was also considered immortal. Lastly, a great hammer was presented to Thor. The brothers stated, We understand if you're disappointed with the short handle, but do not judge this weapon by that alone. Its name is Molnir, and its power is almost indescribable. It never misses a target, and it will return to its thrower with ease and accuracy. This hammer was also able to channel lightning. Thor held the weapon in his hands and smiled. It is a mighty weapon indeed, and I am pleased. No giant can defeat me as I hold this. The gods Odin, Thor, Sif, and Frey all agreed, all the items crafted, that the hammer, Molnir, was certainly the best, and they would be declared the winner. The brothers Brock and Itri began to clap as they looked at Loki, who, regardless to trying to meddle in the affairs, had apparently failed, and now his head was being requested by the dwarves. Brock began to sharpen his axe, somehow knowing it was Loki who had plagued him that night in the forge. Your head will be mine. But Loki was not out of place quite yet. He stated to the gods and the dwarves, You may have my head, as I promised, but you must not shred a single piece of my neck, for that was not in the deal. <laughs> I am in fact a god, and good for my word, but to damage my neck, well, that simply was not part of the deal at all. The dwarves looked at one another. Itri and Brock argued. How would it be possible to take his head without damaging his neck? They were furious, knowing once again they had been tricked by the trickster. They called Loki a cheater and began to make demands. Odin then intervened, with his voice echoing across the great halls. If people would pay more attention to the words used, they would never negotiate with a cunning Loki trickster god. So by Odin's decree, Thor held down Loki, and Brock and Itri were allowed to sew Loki's mouth shut with magical thread to prevent the trickster's words from fooling anyone again, at least for a period of time. Loki attempted to scream and escape, but Thor held him firmly with a slight smile upon his face as the Dwarvish brothers and himself got a little bit of payback. Just a little tale of how tricksty the trickster god was. And again, not not a good guy. Not so. at all. So now that you know the Nine Realms and then some of the major players, you know, we've covered the beginning. Let me talk about the end. So at the end, as far as 
Norse mythology is concerned, you have Ragnarok. And in Old Norse, Ragnarok translates to Doom of the Gods and represents the end of the world of gods and men. It is considered a cataclysmic destruction of the cosmos and everything in it. And for the Vikings, Ragnarok was a prophecy of an uncertain future. They knew it would happen, they just didn't know when. Uh, it was fully described in the 10th century Icelandic poem, Sibyl's Prophecy, and then was sort of fleshed out more in the 13th century in the prose Edda of Snorri Sturluson. The gods knew there was nothing they could do to stop Ragnarok. Like I said, Odin lived with the knowledge that Ragnarok was going to happen, but he also knew that hopefully it would not be the end of the world. There was still a chance. And so, the prophecy of Ragnarok. Someday, when the Norns decree, the Norns being like the fates of Greek mythology, they sort of decide when things will happen and in the measure of a man's life and in, in that, uh, a great winter will cover the world. And this will be unlike any winter ever seen before. The winds will blow snow from all directions. The warmth of the sun will fail. And this winter will last for the length of three normal winters with no summers in between. And it would be known as Fimble Winter. So kind of Ragn- the opposite of global warming. Well, I was going to say, Ragnarok begins with climate change. Uh, the people will become so desperate for food and other necessities that all laws and morals will fall away. And all that is left will be just the struggle to survive. It will be an age of swords and axes. Brother will slay brother. Father will slay son. Son will slay father. So men will turn on each other. Men will kill each other. Morals will go away. I mean, again. Very similar to the Civil War time frame. Kind of sounds like things that are going on. Yeah. Now, the actual beginning of Ragnarok, a beautiful rooster named Fjallar will warn the giants that Ragnarok has begun. At the same time, in hell, a red rooster will warn the dishonorable dead. And in Asgard, a red rooster known as Gulenkambi will warn the gods that Ragnarok has come. The wolves Skull and Hati, which are children of the trickster god Loki, who apparently is the father of monsters, well, they are known from the beginning of time as hunters of the sun and moon. They finally catch their prey. Skull will catch the sun and swallow her, splattering Asgard with gore. Hadi will catch the moon and mangle him. The stars will disappear, leaving only a black void in the sky. Yggdrasil, the world tree that holds creation together, will tremble, and all the trees and mountains of the world will fall to the ground. All bindings will break. You know, that sounds like maybe that's not great. The chain that holds back the monstrous wolf Fenrir will snap. Now, in Norse mythology, Fenrir is just a massive, super... Super monster. Yeah, a, a wolf to destroy gods. And then when the, when the chain snaps, Fenrir will, of course, run free. Jormungundr. Jormungundr is the world serpent that coils at the bottom of the ocean and circles the world and is in the roots of the world tree. Jormungundr, the world serpent will rise from the depths, spilling the sea over the earth as he makes landfall. All of these shakings will free the ship Naglafar from its moorings. I found this detail a little weird. Naglafar is made of the finger and toenails of dead men and women. Ooh, creepy. Uh, It will easily sail over the flooded earth, crewed by an army of giants, and captained by none other than Loki, who is now a traitor to the gods. Uh, He will have broken free of the chains that bound him. Uh, apparently at some point in time confined by the gods, which... I had enough yeah. of his crap. Fenrir, the great flaming-eyed and fire-breathing wolf, will run across the sky. His lower jaw will be on the ground, his upper jaw in the sky, devouring all that is in his path. So Fenrir will just ravage the world. Jormungundr will spit his venom all over the world, poisoning land, water, and air. So the world will become inhospitable. I mean, 
You can see all of this. I mean, technically, yeah. you got typhoons happening. You've got poisoning, which could be gas pipes and, and stuff from earthquakes. Yeah. And um, The dome of the sky will split open, and from this split will emerge the fire giants of Muspelheim. Their leader, Surtur, with flaming sword brighter than the sun, will lead their charge into Midgard. You can almost see that as like asteroids yeah. coming down out of the heavens and striking Earth. And as they attack, they will charge across the Bifrost to attack Asgard. The bridge will break and fall behind them, shattering the connection between Asgard and Midgard. As they approach, an ominous horn blast will be heard, and this will be Heimdall blowing the Galarhorn to announce the moment the gods have long since feared. Odin will consult with the head of Mimir, the wisest of all for counsel. Once again. And at this point, the gods will decide to go to battle, and they know the prophecies. They've been foretold. This is the end. This is the last great battle, and most gods will not survive. The gods will arm themselves, and they will meet their enemies on a battlefield known as Vigrid. Odin will battle Fenrir. The Nine Heriar, the host of the human warriors from Valhalla that he has kept there, have been waiting for this moment to join him at his side. Uh, they will fight more valiantly than they have ever fought before, but they will not succeed. Fenrir will swallow Odin and the Nine Heriar. So, I mean, Odin is like the first to fall here. One of Odin's sons, Vidar, burning with rage, will charge Fenrir to avenge Odin's death. And on his foot is a shoe made for this very moment. I found this kind of a weird detail. It is crafted from all the scraps of leather that human shoemakers have ever discarded. (laughs) And he will use it to hold Fenrir's mouth open and then stab Fenrir through the throat and kill him. Another great wolf, Garm, again another child of Loki, and the god Tyr will engage in battle before eventually slaying each other. Heimdall and Loki will fight each other to the death. Um, Heimdall finally ending the trickster god's treachery, but losing himself in the process, and therefore one of the you know gods great one of the greatest gods of Asgard falls in battle. Double knockout, basically. Thor and Jormungandr will battle, and Thor will kill the great serpent with blows from Mjolnir. He'll eventually defeat this great venomous monster, but of course in the battle the serpent will have covered him in so much venom that he takes nine paces and then falls to his death on the battlefield of Vigrid. So now Thor's dead. Thor dies. Freyr and the giant Surtur battle each other to the death. And in his death throes, Surtur sets the world ablaze with his flaming sword. And the remains of the world as we know it sink into the boiling sea. And nothing remains then except the void. Creation and all that has happened since the beginning is undone. As if it had never happened. Now, some Ragnarok prophecies say that is it. That's the end. It's over. Some believe there's a little more. Some say that a new green and beautiful world will arise from the waters that the old world sank into. Ah, the rebirth. Vidar and a few of the other gods, Vali, Baldur, Hoder, and Thor's sons, Modi and Magni, will survive. And they will live joyously in this new world. A man and a woman, Lif and Lifthrasir, will have hidden themselves from the cataclysm and somehow survived the end of the world. And they will now come forth and repopulate this lush land that they find themselves in. So these are just humans. These aren't yeah. any gods or deities. A new sun, daughter of the previous one, will rise in the sky. And all of this will be presided over by a new almighty ruler. Now I understand if you look at that in a certain way. Maybe Ragnarok has happened. Lif and Lifthrasir could be Adam and Eve. Ah. You know, this will all be presided over by a new almighty ruler. And this is this green lush paradise that they find themselves in. So I I assume one interpretation, and I would assume that happened 
I would hate to say it, like I don't want to make assumptions, but maybe that was sort of a Christianized version, version of Ragnarok. Of but still, when you look at Ragnarok and you realize that it begins with climate change and moral decay, it's hard to look around the world and we're in the middle of climate change in a winter I said in an earlier episode, I don't think some religious texts are meant to be taken literally. A winter is always just, I mean, ultimately described in a lot of times as a time of scarcity. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we're, we're upon that. We're in a time of scarcity, apparently. So, Well, and one of the emblems that, I mean, immediately come to my mind, and it's shared with Viking Norse with, with other religions, is the snake that's eating its tail, yeah. basically eating itself, and obviously the whole circle of life, rinse, repeat. Yeah, how many times could this have happened already? You know, or, or obviously we could be going through it right now, to your point. So you have this world-shattering event that even the gods, like, they know they can't do anything about it. It's going to happen. You know, the Vikings live their life. I mean, kind of, uh, you know, every day to the fullest kind of philosophy because they, they knew Ragnarok was going to happen someday. And they def- definitely did not fear death. Uh, uh, I mean, yeah. that, that just pushed them. Um, that's why they were, I think, such great explorers, such great warriors, is they didn't care if they died. It was it was almost, uh, for lack of a better term, a, a blessing. That was the way to go is out as on long a battlefield. As long as you or, died. And I, I saw like diff- different interpretations of dying valiantly in battle that, you know, of course, we think of it in the literal sense. You know, you charge into battle and you die. But. You know, there were some interpretations that said that could be any great struggle. That could be, you know, you die. Settling new lands, die of starvation. Yeah, you're, or you're, yeah you're, you're conquering something else. You die, you know. The unworthy dead were the ones that basically just, you you died of old age or you died, you know, of, of illness that you couldn't conquer. You know, but then again, certain types of illness, maybe you died battling that illness, you know. We talk about, you know, fighting cancer and the likes. But, you know, that was... I mean, essentially all the monsters ever created come forth to, to say, okay, this is it. This is the end of the world. And even the, the Norse gods, in, in a way, they, they, they charged headlong into a battle they knew they could not and win. Sounds like most of them fall. Yeah, and, and yeah, you lost all of the, 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 the key players. Ones. So it was, I found it, again, I proposed North mythology as the episode, but then the more I delved into it, I thought the entire episode could be Ragnarok, Ragnarok, because that's kind of, you know, their judgment day. And, and I hate to be, again, you know, this negative point of view, but sometimes it kind of feels like we're getting close. Well, we hope that uh, you have enjoyed this enlightening look of Norse mythology and in particular Ragnarok. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'd like to give a shout out to our first uh, paying sponsor, Raven's Loft. That's our family shop here located in uh, London, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, vinyl records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon, and also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for, again, supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in, kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, (laughs) using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and 
clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, and I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.